This is Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This podcast is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's art collections. Our website is artuk.org and our social media handle is artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. Be sure to find us on your social media channel of choice. The setting was Europe in the 1940s. The world was at war and communities across the continent were facing destruction. In the course of these events, historic buildings were being leveled and cultural objects were at risk of theft. Paintings by Rembrandt, paintings by Leonardo da Vinci, sculpture by Michelangelo, all of those things were stolen. As a response, the Allied forces assembled a crack team of museum and cultural professionals for the Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives program. You may have heard them referred to as the Monuments Men. The Monuments Men were a group of men and women, important to say that, that were about 70% American, 30% of them were British, until these countries were in Europe were liberated, and then there were Monuments officers from the countries that were liberated, from France, Holland, Belgium, and so on. That's Robert Edsel, author and founder of the Monuments Men Foundation for the Preservation of Art. They were museum directors and curators, artists, architects, librarians. Many were archivists because they needed all these different skills in the tasks that they face. There were initially just a handful. By the end of the war in in Europe, there were no more than 70 or 80 in Northern Europe and about 40 or so in Italy. Their numbers eventually totaled about 350, although there were never that many there at one time. So a remarkable group of people, average age was about 40. Most were accomplished in their careers. Many were married and had kids. And they had every reason to not volunteer for military service during World War II. Most of them were never going to be drafted, but they felt they had an important contribution to make and a great risk to themselves put on military uniforms Two, in fact, were killed during combat. The monument's officers did not directly participate in combat, but some did carry weapons, in part because their proximity to the front lines put them at risk. As officers of the Civil Affairs Division of the Army, they were the plan originally was for them to be behind the frontline troops and come into the cities afterwards with the other Civil Affairs officers to establish control of the cities and get the cities back in uh, an operation. However, to protect the cultural treasures in these towns, and in particular to avoid theft by uh, foreign troops as well as as, uh, allied troops, they realized that they needed to be there alongside the frontline troops or immediately after the towns were liberated to be able to do their jobs. And that put them at increasing risk, especially as the ground combat moved further and further into Germany, and both the two monuments officers that were killed were killed in Germany. Uh, one was removing works of art from a church in Cleve, Germany, a British monuments officer, Ronald Balfour, and uh, the other was a, an American monuments officer, Walter Hutchhausen, who was killed on a road checking out a report of looted art. The loss of heritage sites and cultural objects is one of the many atrocities of wars. In recent years in Syria, for example, we've seen the tragic destruction of six UNESCO World Heritage Sites. 
there are several organizations concerned with the loss of cultural heritage in Syria, carrying out awareness campaigns and digitization projects in the hopes of preserving as much as possible. Though this episode focuses on the Second World War, it's important to note that there's a history of cultural preservation efforts in war before and since. The idea of preserving cultural treasures during war was first actually formalized in the United States during the Civil War by President Lincoln to avoid deliberate destruction of cultural treasures during combat. Uh, It was further addressed in the Hague Convention in 1907. The Germans were the first to create any kind of formal effort to protect cultural treasures, the Kunschutz, as they called it. But it happened only as a consequence of their troops deliberately burning the important library at the University of Louvain, Belgium. And it was not a comprehensive effort. So the very first comprehensive effort took place during World War II. And the British had the idea about the understood the importance of protecting cultural treasures in, in areas in North Africa where they were in 1940 fighting the war in Libya and other places. But the idea of creating a more comprehensive effort was one that took place in the United States with a monuments officer named George Stout. Stout was... Uh, old enough he'd seen combat during World War I. He realized that the United States was sooner or later going to be in World War II, and the great risk being that in the process of trying to defeat the Nazis, we would lay waste to so much of the great cultural treasures uh, of Western civilization in, in the Western European countries, and we would be the goats of history for having done so. So the, the idea was really to mitigate damage to cultural treasures by allied bombing and then to effect temporary repairs on the ground. And while they knew there'd be some looting, nobody anticipated looting on the scale of what took place by the Nazis. So then how do you determine the kinds of experts you need? Because you you discussed maybe more calculated bombing, for example. But then in, in terms of the people who were part of this section, how do they determine, okay, we needed this kind of person, we needed that kind of person in order to carry out these tasks? It's fair to say that in the United States, there essentially wasn't a, a significant museum employee or cultural figure who did not volunteer. Everybody wanted to help. Everybody had their hand in the air to try and make some contribution. And and the, I suppose, common denominator was so many of the people that volunteered as people at the time were, had been educated in Europe or had traveled in Europe, and they understood what were the most important things to be protected. What were the important churches? What were the important libraries and uh, archive facilities? And these were the things that occupied so much of the work before the United States had boots on the ground and this is where the women played a significant part in as much as at the time they couldn't participate in combat, were developing lists of the works of art that were the protected cultural treasures and the ones that we were going to try and steer bombing away from and make sure that temporary repairs were affected if they were damaged. So that's where it really began. And in that respect, I mean, if you think about it, the things that needed to be saved were fairly obvious. Libraries archives, important monuments, important churches, and certainly museums and private collections of works of art. These were the things that 
were the primary focus. Though the work of the Monuments Men was carried out on the European continent, UK institutions were also carrying out similar work in anticipation of bombing. The director of the National Gallery in London at the time, Kenneth Clark, oversaw the safe evacuation and storage of all of the gallery's paintings. The collection was first stored in locations around Wales before it was hidden in caves. Clark had approached Winston Churchill about sending the artworks to Canada by ship, but it was deemed too risky. One can imagine that the priorities of museum professionals and archivists were at times at odds with that of the military. The Monuments Men initially experienced some resistance, but it certainly helps your cause when the Supreme Allied Commander has an interest in art. General Dwight D. Eisenhower went on to produce over 250 paintings in his life. I think to the Monuments Men, great surprise, they found that more and more officers in the field were interested in hearing what they had to say. I think there was a bit more resistance when they were dealing with the more higher ups, but General Eisenhower, who was a Supreme Allied Commander of all Allied for all Western Allied forces, the Americans, the British, and all those that were head countries that were liberated, made this a priority. And he was supported in that effort by General Marshall, the Chief of Staff of the Army, and President Roosevelt, who approved the original plan that created the Monuments Men. And I think that more and more in the field, as these, I won't say older, well, we could say older monuments men in their 40s, who many of them who were college professors, university professors, were speaking to their superior officers, who oftentimes were 25, 26, young lieutenants, young captains. They, they were interested in hearing what these guys had to say. There was a premium on some guys with some gray hair and life experiences, and I think they steadied nerves oftentimes, and they found as I said, to their surprise, that younger officers were very interested in what they had to say. And I suppose at the ancient uh, abbey at Monte Cassino in Italy, that was something that was leveled because there was a conviction that German forces were firing upon Allied troops from inside the abbey. That turned out not to be the case, but it was a horrific battle that went on for month after month that had claimed more than 50,000 lives. It's, a, it's oftentimes lost in the shadow of Battle of the Bulge and some of these other dramatic fights, but it was a horrific difficulty in November, December, January, February of 43-44, and the Allies were stuck, and they could not get through this narrow passageway because of the promontory where the, where the uh, Abbey was, and the decision was made to bomb it, and it didn't utterly destroy it, but it uh, severely devastated it. And there was some controversy uh, for a little while, but I think even the monuments officers, once they got there and saw what had happened, realized it could hardly have been any other way. So far, we've discussed the idea of preservation on a larger scale of protecting entire buildings, but work was also carried out to protect smaller, more portable items. The unsung heroes in many cases, are the local art officials who went to great lengths to try and protect their own works of art. And in the case of the Northern European countries that were overrun so quickly, in some cases, these things happened so fast, they, uh, like the Bruges Madonna by Michelangelo from Bruges, Belgium, was still inside the church. There wasn't anything they could do about it. And there it sat safely until... September 1944, when the Allies were just a few weeks down the road and the Nazis 
in the face of human nature where they should have been fleeing to get away from the oncoming advance of the Western allies still were hanging around trying to steal things. And they stole it and got it on a ship and took it around the North Sea into Germany and then hid it in a salt mine. So as the allies took control of these liberated cities and then control of conquered cities inside Germany, they knew the works of art that belonged in the churches and the museums and in some cases private collections. And they were on the hunt for them to make sure that they were there and safe. And time and time again, the things that belonged there were missing. And so it set off the starter gun on what was the greatest treasure hunt in history, trying to track down literally millions of stolen cultural objects from library books to stained glass to butterfly collections to coin collections to, of course, paintings, drawings, sculpture, tapestries, and so on. The work of the Monuments Men didn't end with the war. Someone had to stay behind to organize and return an estimated 5 million stolen cultural objects, and there was no better suited team. They had the role. There wasn't anybody else there to do it. The Army found itself in a position of, what do you do when there are millions of stolen cultural objects in thousands of hiding places from caves and castles to salt mines, some two to 3,000 feet beneath the surface of the earth, spread out over a dozen Western European countries. The army wanted to send their troops home. The war was over. They wanted to demobilize as quickly as possible, but somebody had to deal with this problem. The army didn't want to be in the business of restituting these works of art to the countries from which they were stolen, which was the Allied Western Allied policy, but there wasn't anybody else to do it. And in fact, if, the, if they had only started then to gather the leading experts in the world to address something like this, the people that they would have selected happened to be the monuments men who were already there. And in this case, this is where the women play such an important role. They worked alongside the men in helping not just with back office duties, but also trying to track down where some of these missing works of art were. So to fast forward, while all these millions of troops were coming home, the work of the monuments, men and women, was just beginning. And that's where their numbers uh, actually swelled from 120 or so at the end of the war up to a larger number. And they spent six years in Europe until 1951 when the last monuments officer came home sorting through millions of cultural objects to determine which countries these things had been taken from, where they belonged, and then working with monuments officers from those countries to get these things back and obviously devastated Europe. So just the transportation alone was a crushingly difficult problem to have to deal with. And by the time the last monuments officer came home in 1951, they had overseen the return of more than 4 million stolen objects to the various countries from which they'd been taken and almost a million objects that they had been custodians of for the better part of five years that belonged to Germany or German museums that they were able to turn over to the newly elected German government. It just seems logistically like it would be so difficult to find where the objects belonged, uh, let alone getting them back to where they belong. It would, and it did in some cases. But if you consider that so many of the things that were stolen were so famous mm. that you could have had lay people 
tell you that the Lady with the Nerman by, Michael, by Leonardo da Vinci belongs to the Czartoryski collection in Krakow, Poland, or the Bruges Madonna is was sculpted by Michelangelo and belongs to the church in Bruges, or the Ghent altarpiece by the Van Eycks belongs in Ghent, Belgium, and so on. So there were tens of thousands of things that were obvious. And then as it, you move down the list of library books, I mean, these were entire libraries that were stolen. That got to be more difficult in some instances because, as you know, just because of books in Yiddish or in Polish doesn't mean it belongs in Israel or a, a Jewish library or in a Polish library because libraries are an amalgamation of different languages. So they had to then develop a technique to identify were there any collector's codes, were there library stamps in the books, and it involved individual sorting that just took, as I said, six years to try and determine. So some of it was easy at the beginning, and the longer the process went on, the more difficult it got. The operation was finally shut down in 1951, after the Army began to pull resources from the program and focus on the Cold and Korean Wars. The team didn't want to abandon the project because they knew that there were still hundreds of thousands of missing objects. But fortunately, their work continues on. Things are found every day. They're just not as visible to the public because it's not, it's not during combat and that doesn't happen all at once. But the Monuments Men Foundation, as an example, has found and returned more than 30 important objects, some of which are priceless to um, German museums, to individual collectors, archives, both in Europe as well as in the United States, objects that, were, that include paintings, drawings, tapestries, important documents, library books. We returned eight rare, almost 500-year-old books that belonged to the University of Naples library that had been taken as a souvenir by an American soldier. So there's still hundreds of thousands of things missing worth billions of dollars. And as we lose the rest of the World War II generation, the things that they owned that are in attics and basements and hanging on walls are going to continue to emerge. And I'm very hopeful that many of the things that are missing will appear. This is not a story about a dead subject matter of World War II history. It is a story that we continue to write the final chapter about World War II today as we find these things. They reveal elements of World War II that we oftentimes didn't know. They open the door to other things that are missing. That, of course, gives us hope that we're going to continue to see important objects. And it's a story that is ongoing today. We know with theft and destruction of cultural treasures in conflict areas around the world, from the Horn of Africa to Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, and so on, that cultural treasures, as they have always historically been, are the target of bad guys, either attempting to steal them to confer a sense of importance upon them, or to destroy them, as has happened at the hands of ISIS and Al-Qaeda far too often over the last 15 years. And works of art are going to continue to be under threat forever. They're, they're like children. They don't have uh, the ability to relocate themselves. They don't have the ability to protect themselves. They depend on all of us to save them for future generations and they haven't survived by accident. So if they're going to survive in the future, it's going to be the consequence of deliberate action taken by people today 
to make sure that they're around for future generations to see and enjoy. To see images related to today's discussion and a link to Robert Edsel's work with the Monuments Men Foundation, head over to artuk.org. A film based on Robert's book on the subject came out in 2014, so if you're interested in seeing a little bit more, or maybe you just like George Clooney, you can check out the film The Monuments Men. As always, thank you for tuning in today, and please join us again next time.